Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. I'd like to invite you to join me, please, uh, in your Bibles by turning to Matthew chapter 1. And we're going to get into the text in just a moment. Uh, we're going to talk about this series that begins today. But first, I want us to offer a word of prayer that clears the mind and readies the heart for our study today. And so if you are worshiping in our Family Life Center, I'm going to ask you to turn with me as well uh, in your Bibles. Or if you're online and you're, you're tuning in as a part of our extended family, uh, you are welcome in this place anytime that you're in town. We hope that you will join us. But for now, let's offer a word of prayer on our way to the text. And God, we stop for just a moment to take a deep and cleansing breath. To simply become aware of the sheer possibility of this moment. A moment in which your spirit can do something or say something to our own spirits that changes everything. But even as we prepare, we recognize and we confess to you that on the hearts and minds, even on the shoulders of your worshipers, there are burdens that are bearing down today. We simply pray that in order for us to be free enough to listen to what your spirit would have us to say, that you would give us a moment, Lord, of relief, of reprieve, that you would remove from our minds and hearts anything that keeps us from seeing and hearing you clearly today. And we pray these things in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. So I'm very excited today to start. We're about to read our scripture in just a moment. But I want to do a word of setup kind of before the sermon to get us ready for this series. Today we begin a new series called The Fam. And for the next seven weeks, we're going to speak very candidly about issues, real life situations, issues facing all of our families. Now here's the disclaimer at the very beginning of this series and at the beginning of the sermon to no two families are the same. I mean, when God puts together families, when God assembles families, God doesn't use a cookie cutter. Right, we're all a little bit different. We've got all kinds of wonderful little quirks and idiosyncrasies and, and, and little, you know, wonderful kind of wackiness that makes us who we are. Your family doesn't do it the way my family does, and, and neither does your neighbors. But here's, here's what's beautiful about it. Even though none of us are exactly the same, there are some experiences that are common to all families. Every family I've ever met, they know how to hope for something, and they know how to hurt. Every family I have ever known, they know how to strive after something, and they know how to struggle when that something just doesn't seem to happen. I mean, every one of us that I know 
We, we just want to come home at the end of the day or at the end of the week or into the, the, the period of time to, to a relationship or a set of relationships with somebody who reminds us why in the world we're even doing this stuff. We want to be content, happy. We want to experience some joy, satisfaction. We want to watch human beings from the time they are born to the time they launch go and create some new world for us to live in. We, we, we want the same things. And we also know the same feeling of despair and, and disappointment when there's some kind of threat to any of these things that we value, when something is lost or removed. So I want to spend the next seven weeks talking about how does our faith in Jesus Christ, how does being shaped by the person of the risen Lord transform how we view and do our families? Because I am absolutely convinced that there is a way to go through all of life's circumstances and face any crisis and any, any struggle and yet still maintain in the midst of the storm a kind of peace that defies logic, a steadiness of heart, a kind of stability of mind. I think that we can be still non-anxious, hope-filled people in, even in the midst of the challenges we face as families. And I want to talk about that. So the next several weeks, that's what we're going to do. In fact, I want to give you a glimpse of the kinds of things we're going to talk about right now so that you can invite somebody to be a part of this ongoing conversation. Next week is Mother's Day. So on Mother's Day, the title of the sermon is Keeping Mom from Losing Her Marbles. And I want you to be here. If you are a mom or, or, or not a mom, if you wish you were a mom and weren't, if you are a mom but even have lost those who you brought into life, no matter who you are on the spectrum, there is something for you in next week's sermon. I want you to invite all the moms that you know in fact, I want you to invite moms, especially if you know they don't have a church home, but even if you know they have a church home, I want you to go steal them from their church home and bring them here so that we can keep mom from losing her marbles. That's next week. The next week after that, we, we deal with dealing with difficult relationships in the family. Oh, somebody groaned. I heard that. Yeah. Now listen, I know that's a stretch because it's all likely that it's really likely that you... You don't have any difficult relationships in your family. It's probable that you don't have any difficult people in your family either. I don't either. But Laura's family does. And I just got to talk about it. So we're going <laughs> to... This is one of those days when I wish she was in the other room. There you go. All right, so we're going to talk about difficult relationships. How do you navigate the troubled waters of difficult relationships? We're going to handle that in two weeks. Then we're going to handle... Dealing with change in the family. What kind of change? Any kind of change. Because every kind of change is a loss of something. But through the eyes and ears and heart of Jesus, anything we lose has the potential to rise again. And we're going to talk about how do you navigate change of whatever variety in your family. Then we're going to come back the next week and the title of the sermon is, It's the Kids. It's the kids. That's the day we launched VBS that night, and we're talking all about kids. And it doesn't matter if you have kids, you want to have kids but can't, you have kids but don't want them. <laughs> you know, it does not matter. Because on that Sunday, what we're talking about is, is it's time for the church of Jesus Christ to raise up a new generation of 
of individuals who are passionately in love with Jesus. And what is the church's responsibility, even if you don't have kids? What's the church's responsibility in raising up a new generation of children who are on fire for Christ? The next week we move into perhaps some deeper and more difficult waters. The sermon then is called Aftermath, when forgiveness isn't easy. What do you do after the thing happens that changed everything and, and, and there's still this elephant in the room and nobody wants to talk about it? And, and what if you know you want to forgive and you, you, you would like to be able to do it because you, you feel like you're called to forgive, but there's not a single bone in your body that wants to yet? How do you do it? And then the last uh, sermon of the series is on Father's Day. And on Father's Day, I'm really excited about this this sermon, I'm going to do something that we've never done before. I've, I've never done it. The title of the sermon that day is Keeping It Real, a tag team Father's Day sermon with Nathan and Jackson King. Yeah, baby. Nathan and Jackson have agreed to be on the platform with me, and we're going to sit and we're going to talk about real stuff. And we're going to talk about relationships and families and parents and kids and trouble. We've got to be a little bit vulnerable with each other and with you in order to have a real conversation. It can either be spectacular or it might be a total train wreck. I, I don't know. It depends on what they tell you about me. But I really am excited to start the conversation right now in a topic that I want to call This Is Us. This is us. Warts and all, this is us. Now, when I use that phrase, this is us, you may be thinking about the NBC TV series, right? Well, so am I. That's one of our favorite shows. It's so well written. It's the story of the, the Pearson family. Uh, the mom and dad meet in the 70s, post-Vietnam era. They fall in love. They have triplets. But on the day of their birth, one of the triplets dies. But providentially, another child who was born that same day, an African-American child, a boy, was brought to the hospital, and the Pearsons all left together with an adopted son and the two who were just born uh, to the parents. And the story of their life is raising the kids through the 1980s with really big hair and funny-looking clothes, you know. And it's really well-written because it's, it takes place in current day, but it has these time hops where it'll do a flashback to when they were kids and then it'll do a flash forward to when they're old. And yet what's compelling about the story is every single character in the story has this kind of baggage. A kind of what I'm going to call this morning a kind of um, fatal flaw. It's a weakness or a vulnerability or an insecurity or something that has, that has paralyzed them, but they consider it like a fatal flaw, like this is the one thing that keeps me from being uh, all that I'm meant to be. You know, the father is an alcoholic. The mother is a control freak. One of the sons is so smart that it, it, it kind of distances him from everybody who wants to get near him, and it, it creates a kind of anxiety disorder in his life that he has to manage for the rest of his life. And one of the other sons is, is a good-looking, you know, sexy uh, guy on this TV show. So all the girls uh, want to be with him and all the, all the dudes want to be him, you know. And so he, he's got this baggage as well as he repeats the alcoholism of his father. And then there's the daughter, the sister, 
who from the time she was young has struggled with this morbid obesity that has been following her through her whole life. And each one of them has this, this baggage, this thing, this fatal flaw that keeps them from being who they, who they need to be and are called to be. And here's the thing about watching a, a show like that. You sit there and you watch a show like that, and, and on the one hand, you're like, well, at least we're not that messed up. But on the other hand, what a show like that does is it awakens in you the awareness that every family, without exception, is a mixture of brokenness and beauty. We are a mixture of strengths and weaknesses. And I just want to acknowledge today as we worship with one another that on this campus there there are families who have made it here today and I'm so proud of you and yet you almost didn't make it because you're carrying some burden and you realize what the strengths of your family are and you're proud of them but you also perhaps carry with you an awareness that this one part of our family is what's keeping us from being who we can be. And this, this one fatal flaw seems to keep trapping us every time. And maybe it's a skeleton you have in the closet. Maybe it's a relationship that's always been on the rocks and nobody seems to want to talk about this thing. Or, or maybe there's some addiction or some special situation that causes every person in the family to feel it. Right? You're like, if we can't get rid of this, I'll never fully, truly be who I'm meant to be. And this family can never move past it. I'm here to tell you that I'm absolutely convinced that it is precisely in the weakest places of your life and your family's life, in those vulnerable places where you are broken and maybe even a little bit embarrassed or shamed, it's in those places that God can create a venue in which God shows up and shows off in your life. That in the the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have this awareness that that all of God's best demonstration of power and love and grace and redemption, they come in moments of weakness. They come in these seasons when we wish we could change it, but we just can't, and we struggle, and we hurt, and we are broken. And I want to tell you the reason I'm so convinced this is true is because of a, a family that we all know very well who may have been one of the most dysfunctional families in history. The family of Jesus Jesus was from a dysfunctional family. And how we know it? Well, you open up the text to Matthew chapter 1, and he gives a genealogy, a genealogy in chapter 1 that is jam-packed with evidences of some skeletons in the closet, evidences of moments in the history of Jesus' family when it could have been interpreted as a fatal flaw. They're not going to survive this, and yet... Here he is, reigning supreme. I want to read this text for you, but I just got to confess to you, genealogies are not the most enjoyable parts of the Bible. I mean, they're nowhere near as exciting as, say, like Leviticus. You saw that coming a mile away, didn't you? Yeah. We have to read genealogies with what Dr. Raymond Brown calls an elastic consciousness, which means you, you you kind of glaze over it. But if we choose not to glaze over it today, I want to suggest there is tucked into this first chapter of Matthew some good news for every family who who believes you may have seen the best days behind you. And listen to these words. 
This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, uh, whose mother was Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, the father of Neshon, the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. Are you excited yet? Is this not exhilarating reading? Jesse, the father of David. David, the father of Solomon, whose mother was Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. The father of Abijah, of Asa, of Jehoshaphat, of Jehoram, Uzziah, Larry, Mo, Curly. So let's move on to verse, verse 12. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheelatil, Zerubbabel, Abihud, Eliakim, Azor, Zadok, um, sleepy, grumpy, dopey. Okay, verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Oh, what's happening in this text? Do you realize that no gospel writer has to use a birth story to get the business done? We have four gospels in our Bible. It's the gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Only two of them tell us about the birth at all. It's because a gospel writer doesn't have to tell a birth story to get the job done. You know what the job of the gospel writer was? The only thing the gospel writer was concerned with was to tell the world about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from death. The resurrection of Christ from death. Everything that happens in the gospel, we would never have known about any of it had he not been raised from the dead. But because he's raised from the dead, the writers go back and retell the story, and they're like, hey, hang on. Oh, all this was leading to this spectacular miracle of God raising Jesus from the dead and giving life and hope and and eternity to the world and redeeming humankind. Therefore, everything that happened before it has new meaning. And so every conversation Jesus had, every teaching that he offered that you and I know about, every encounter he had with people, every miracle, every sign, and even every birth story and genealogy is put into the gospel not because of its own purpose, but because it serves the higher purpose of teeing up an understanding of the resurrection. It's only in there to tee up in our minds Something about the resurrection that happens at the end of the story. So why in the world would Matthew put a genealogy at the front of his version of the Jesus story? What is in it that would have anything compelling to say about our faith today and about the resurrection? Well, just this. In this genealogy, there are 42 men whose names are mentioned. There are five women. Now, that's unusual, but it's not unusual because there are so many men and so few women. It's unusual because there are any women at all. When the writers of Scripture put together genealogies, they have a lot of discretion as to how they script it. And if you take this genealogy and compare it to the same list in the Old Testament, Matthew turns out to have made some omissions. He left out names, like the names of about three kings, three major kings left out of this lineup. But he chose to include the obscure names of five women 
Why? Because all five women that he's kind of tucking in there at the beginning of the resurrection story, all five women have scandals associated with their names. Every one of them are emblematic. They symbolize some some vulnerability, some weakness, some insecurity, some sense of sin or brokenness, scandal or shame. And Matthew is saying they belong in this story for a purpose. Do you remember Tamar? She's one of the ones mentioned. You know what Tamar did? I mean, Tamar marries this guy, one of, one of Judah's three sons, and then he dies. And so as the custom was, she marries the next brother. And then he doesn't perform his duties. We're just going to keep it like there. Are you with me? And so he gets rid of her. And the father says, you know, I'm done with you. Be away. And he casts her out. You know what Tamar does? Tamar dresses up like a prostitute so that when her father-in-law is walking by, he's, she, well, she offers her business. And he sleeps with her. And she gets pregnant with her father-in-law and has a baby. And the family line of Jesus continues. You remember Rahab, who's mentioned in this list. You may know her better by her name in the King James Version. Rahab the, the harlot. Yeah, She didn't have to pretend to be a prostitute. She actually was a prostitute. In Jericho, and, and when the Israelites came and fought the battle of Jericho, she helped the Israelite spies, and so God allowed her to marry an Israelite. They have a baby together, and the line of Jesus continues. Or, or what about Ruth? Ruth is also named in this long list. What's so wrong about Ruth? Ruth's a pretty story. It's a wonderful story. We, we read the Ruth passages at weddings. Where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. But we forget that Ruth was a Moabite. Do you remember where the Moabites came from? When uh, uh, Sodom was destroyed, Lot and his two daughters escaped and stayed in the cave for refuge. And while in the cave, uh, the daughters get their father drunk sleep with him, and get pregnant. And the race that is born is the Moabites, a race born out of ancestral relationships. And the family of Jesus continues. Or what about Bathsheba? She's in the list too. Now, we didn't read Bathsheba's name because Matthew is Matthew's messing with you. Matthew's messing with you. He doesn't list Bathsheba by name. He says, oh yeah, there was this other parent and she was the wife of Uriah. Why? In order to evoke a memory, a, a biblical theological memory in us that Uriah's wife was Bathsheba. Do you remember that story? And King David, while he is supposed to be at battle expanding his kingdom, he's at home looking out of his window lusting Upon a woman, he uses his authority and power, or I should say misuses it, and brings her in, and they have sex, and she gets pregnant. The baby eventually dies. She gets pregnant again, and they give birth to Solomon, the greatest, wisest king of all of Israel. And to cover it up, David sends Uriah, his chief officer, to the front of the battle in order to sabotage him, and he is killed 
But the baby continues, and the family line of Jesus continues. So what's Matthew doing? Matthew's like, look, don't forget, I'm about to tell you a story, and it's not going to be believable. You're going to want to dismiss it, because it's about a teenage girl who's a virgin, who is pregnant, and she's not married. But before we go any further, you just need to remember the history of this particular family tree. It's got some curious branches to it. And then he sets up and tells about Mary, the latest, newest scandal. And then he's off and running with it. What is he doing here? Here's what he's doing. He's about to tell us by the end of this gospel about the most spectacular miracle in the history of humankind. He's about to tell us about the glorious day when God raised up his own son from death and demonstrated there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God, not even death. But on the way there, God makes sure to include some spaces and moments in time that at the time, I guarantee you, were being interpreted as fatal flaws. We're not going to get past this one. We won't be able to survive this one. Mm -mm. And yet, with this particular God, Matthew begins to demonstrate your fatal flaw is not final. Just when you think your flaw in your personhood or in your family, whatever it is that's wrong or not perfect about you or your family, just when you begin to interpret that that is where it's going to keep you stuck, the reminder is your fatal flaw is not final. In all of our weaknesses, all of our weaknesses, these become the venue for God. In fact, think of it this way. It is in the weak, embarrassing, imperfect, and even scandalous places where God wants to enter the story of your family and be glorified. All of those spots where you you, got to do the hard work, maybe even do the therapy, maybe even go to counseling, maybe even uh, seek some help outside of your family, maybe even outside of, of the resources that you have. All those places where you're worried, go, yeah, work on them, but understand this. It is in those places that God is desiring to to be invited into your story. To demonstrate in weakness what cannot be demonstrated in strength. You know how the Apostle Paul put it? He had this thorn in the flesh. If we call it a fatal flaw or an imperfection or a baggage, he called it a thorn in the flesh. He didn't describe what it was because a thorn in his flesh is different than the thorn in your flesh, but you know what he's talking about. He says, look, this thing keeps getting in my way, and I can't fix it. And I keep asking God to remove it, to remove it, to take away the weakness, to remove the imperfection, to take this thing that surely I'll be way more effective if I got rid of this problem in me. And yet Christ says to him in 2 Corinthians, Three times I appealed to the Lord about this, that it would leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. So I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am content with my weaknesses, with insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities for the sake of Christ. For whenever I am weak, 
That is when I am strong. If you have anything to take away from today's uh, worship, today's time of of, uh, study, take this. You know where you're strong, and we see it too. But do you know that where you're weak, that is a spectacular venue to invite God's grace to show up and show off? It reminds me a little bit, and it's not going to be easy. It won't be easy. Being transformed from the inside out is never easy. It reminds me of the kid who goes home after a baby dedication. He's like three or four years old, and, and his little baby brother is being dedicated, like we're going to do next, next week we'll have here in Mother's Day. And the little baby brother is dedicated, the three or four-year-old, they get in the car to go home after church, and the, the, the four-year-old's crying. He's just crying unconsol- inconsolably, and the father said, what's wrong? And he had to ask him like, Three times he kept on crying without any comfort. He said, son, what is wrong? What are you so upset about? And the boy said, well, the pastor said that, that he wanted all, all of us kids to be raised in a, in a Christian home, but, but I don't want to. I want to stay with you guys. Right? right? I mean, isn't there a, We're all a little bit beauty and a little bit broken. And even our highest aspiration to live for Christ in our families, it comes mixed with some difficulties, right? But maybe that's part of the beauty and part of the call. When you think about your family, what do you think of? Is it possible that you might take an opportunity to lay that thing before God today? Dr. Raymond Brown says, God writes straight with crooked lines. Whatever the crooked line of your family is, God writes straight out of your crooked lines. What is it that you might want to put before him today? Because as we begin this series now for the next few weeks, I want to invite you to surrender what you worry about. Surrender what you fear about your family. And in surrendering that worry and that fear, welcome God. To show why it is that his grace is sufficient for you. So maybe you pray something like this today. And if this is your prayer, just say it to yourself right now. God, I love my family. I love all the wonderful weirdness that makes up who we are. I love it. I love every person in it. And I'm trying with some. But Lord, I am afraid about this thing. And I worry about this other thing. And I don't know what to do with it. So today, I surrender it at your feet. Not so that I abdicate my responsibility. Not so that I let go of my call or my responsibility to fix things and to get healthier. But I surrender it. I lay it at your feet as a confession that I no longer want to believe the lie that it's up to me to fix it all. Instead, I welcome your grace. Show me what you can do that I could never begin to do about my family. Maybe you pray that today. And maybe you begin a journey of complete surrender day by day until the transformation that you so desperately want begins to emerge, not because you've constructed it, but because God has raised it up. Let's pray together. 
God, that really is our prayer. That we confess to you that we're made up of all kinds of strengths. That we see the image of God in us. We see your own image in our families. But we confess that we also have a hard time seeing that image because of our brokenness and our, our, our weakness and our imperfections. But we pray that today you would demonstrate just how it is that it's precisely in those weaknesses and fears and embarrassments that you desire to show up and show out. Lord, move within the heart of someone this day, even as we worship. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.